these groups cannot really claim to be the Trump government in exile because the only person who makes that determination of who gets to be in the administration is ultimately Donald Trump. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, December 15th. Today, I'm joined by Tina Wynn to talk about two rival conservative groups in Washington working to build a shadow Trump administration in exile as Trump coasts to the Republican nomination. And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben to break down the hidden complexities in David Ellison's clever attempt to buy out national amusements from Sherry Redstone and with it, the controlling stake in Paramount Global. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy friday everybody welcome to the powers that be i'm joined today by a very famous author tina Wynn, my colleague <laughs> author of the forthcoming memoir the maga diaries out in january about tina's time in the trenches of conservative politics in her younger days and how she escaped promise you it's good. We're actually, Tina and I are going to do a little bit of a preview of the book for Puck in the next few weeks. So keep an eye out for that. Tina, welcome to the show and congrats on finishing the book. I haven't talked to you on here since you finished the book. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I once read that writing a book is almost the same as like bringing a child into the world. So I've sacrificed a lot of my good childbearing years to this. <laughs> Tina, with, with Donald Trump in the driver's seat in the Republican primary, somehow, according to the latest Des Moines Register poll, 
has expanded his lead in Iowa over Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and everyone else there, including Vivek Ramaswamy, who is absolutely not going to come anywhere close to winning in Iowa uh, or getting out of single digits. So that leaves the question. Typically, when you have a nominee of a party, uh, and it seems like Donald Trump will be the nominee, you have what's called a transition team. And usually this sort of ramps up in the summer, fall of election year. You appoint somebody to start to figure out who can become the chief of staff and staff these agencies and you know become the head of whatever bureau. It sounds like, according to your reporting, and this is sort of predictable for Trump world, that there's some jostling between two different organizations out there trying to position themselves as the kind of turnkey operation for the second Trump presidency, if and when he wins. Um, what can you tell us about these two universes who are dueling for money and attention? So basically, if you heard of the Heritage Foundation, there's this initiative called Project 2025 that's led by them. And um, for those of you who are not steeped in conservative brain like I am, uh, <laughs> Heritage has been around for decades at this point. It was one of the uh, critical intellectual and ideological engines of Reaganism, had a lot of sway during the Bush administrations, and was in a bit of a rocky position during the Trump administration because it has a very specific view of what is quote-unquote conservative. Uh, Think Mm -hmm. literally Ronald Reagan's policy, free trade, anti-labor, yada, yada, yada. So they started this effort to pre-vet candidates who would fit into a Trump administration to implement a specific conservative policy agenda. Mm. The details, I think, are like pretty well-reported and obvious by now. Just imagine your worst Trump nightmare, and that's probably it. However, the advantage that Heritage had was that it brought on all of these legacy conservative institutions as well. Um, the Claremont Institute, which is sort of where my origin story is, mm-hmm. is a partner... Family Research Council, which comes out with all of those anti-gay marriage statements that you might hear in the news every once in a while. I really could go on with the number of groups that are attached to it, <laughs> so I won't. It will. There are 80 of them. It will bore you senseless. However, they were trying to get every big conservative organization on board here, and one of them did not join, and it's been a real point of contention that they did not join. And that group is Mm. called America First Policy Institute, uh, which is trying to be the Heritage Institute, but specifically for Trumpism. Uh, Mm. It's staffed with old Trump administration officials, like six members of his cabinet, tons of people in the Personnel and Policy Institute. It's like often been described as a um, Trump government in exile, like basically... Mm. It's a nice, cushy landing spot for them to remain relevant and draw a paycheck while they wait for Trump to come back into office. Does this organization make sense if Trump's not in office? Probably not. But the fact that he is likely going to be the Republican nominee makes this payoff worthwhile. And uh, initially, Heritage wanted them on board, too. And then AFPI went... Nah, actually, we're going to do our own thing and put together their own transition project Mm. and went to their donors with the promise of, hey, we can staff the next Trump administration because we have a different criteria than Heritage does. And so for months and months and months, they've been waging this like 
weird publicity war where they're like go to various publications and go, we're the true government in exile and we've got plans. And then all of a sudden I'll see the other group pop up elsewhere and they'll go, no, we're the one who has plans. And only recently did people connect the fact that like one, these groups cannot really claim to be the Trump government in exile because the only person who makes that determination of who gets to be in the administration is ultimately Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And two, like, how can there be two governments in exile? How can there be two completely different? Are they even that different of policy visions? Not really, mm-hmm. except in that Heritage has like 900 pages of policy and AFPI virtually has like two page briefing notes. Yeah, I could see how AFPI would position themselves in this sort of, you know, friendly rivalry, I guess you could call it, and point at heritage and be like, I mean, you mentioned Reaganism. I mean, like before, gosh, I think like before the Tea Party and like Jim DeMint took over, it was really like kind of like an old school blue blazer bow tie kind of place in Washington. And they've obviously since Trump gone more populist, but they, I, I guess they can still be considered like, they, they, maybe they got a little whiff of rhino on them, you know, in a way that AFPI doesn't. What right. are some of the names involved in these two different places? Uh, so at AFPI, you have, I think, Linda McMahon, Larry Kudlow, Chad Wolf, Kellyanne Conway, Pat Bondi. Mm. Uh, Ivanka Trump is apparently an informal advisor, though I'm not quite sure of her role there these days. Mm. These are all like Trump cabinet officials, high ranking officers, uh, like high ranking administration officials, uh, mm-hmm. people from his former campaign, so forth, so forth. And they're just like they're kind of honing the agenda they had when Trump was in office with the mindset of what it was like having Trump as their president. And Heritage, the big Trump ally that you have in that position is Johnny McEntee, who used to do the Office of Personnel Management and mm-hmm. notoriously and tried to put loyalty tests on potential hires and fire them if they weren't sufficiently loyal. And then beyond and a that, football player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, and then beyond that, like I wouldn't say there are any boldface names, but there are people mm. who have been in the conservative think tank infrastructure ecosystem for decades at this point. So they have the know-how, they have the knowledge, it's all very theoretical. And to go back to your point about why it is that even if Heritage has now taken on a Trumpy direction, they're still not considered pure enough by MAGA standards, it's because they have changed and evolved with the times. Like, Mm. it is an institution that's going to be there no matter what, but they do change and they do evolve to be more relevant to whatever is in power at any given moment. Is that the sign of an institution trying to survive or is that swampy? I would say I think AFPI would claim that it's swampy. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess I would probably have to agree with AFPI that the Heritage Foundation if you looked it up on Wikipedia, could could probably be described as swampy. I mean, they are the epitome of DC. Uh, last thing to know, like, what is the Trump campaign saying uh, about these places? Uh, you know, I, I, they put out a statement, sort of saying these people don't speak for us, right? 
oh no, it's been so harsh. Like <laughs> Susie Wiles has apparently been going around calling people saying, shut up about your project. You are not like you don't speak for us. And then they keep talking about the project and they put out this memo telling people, look, these guys don't speak for us or our administration or what the campaign's going to look like. And uh, I got to pull up the last statement that they sent out because it's so it's like one of the bitchiest things I've seen <laughs> out of Trump world in a while. Hold on. Um Unless a message is coming directly from President Trump or an authorized member of his campaign team, no aspect of future presidential staffing or policy announcements should be deemed official. Let us be even more specific and blunt. People publicly discussing potential administration jobs for themselves or their friends are, in fact, hurting President Trump and themselves. These are an unwelcome distraction. Second term policy priorities and staffing decisions will not in no uncertain terms be led by anonymous or thinly sourced speculation in mainstream media news stories, blah, blah, blah. He is not interested in, nor does he condone selfish efforts by quote unquote desk hunters. Desk hunters. That's a new desk phrase. Desk hunters. That's a, that's, a, that's a great DC phrase, desk hunter, that I haven't heard. I feel like that needs to be in Veep. Uh, ladder climber was always the term that I used to describe careerist types like that. All right, Tina, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your reporting. And we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Yeah. Have a Merry Christmas. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about David Ellison, Sherry Redstone, and Paramount. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Bill, nice to see you. How are you doing? Hey, Ben. Great to see you, too. Doing well. So, Bill, I really wanted to have you on today to talk about this potential deal that our colleague Matt Bellany first reported last week in which David Ellison's Skydance Media and Jerry Cardinale are apparently kicking the tires on buying Paramount Global's parent company. So Matt Scoop made a huge, huge impact on the stock. It went up like 14, 15 percent. That's like a billion dollars in market cap that it added to Paramount Global. Obviously, there's like a huge amount of caveats that are attached to this reporting. These are just discussions. It's just a, a bit of tire kicking. We'll see if anything actually happens here. But NDAs have been signed. The conversations are happening. So, so we're taking it seriously. You noted, Bill, that the, the market is already starting to sour on this deal. There was this big stock pop, and now Paramount Global is already sort of trading back down again. It sounds like this may be a better deal for Sherry Redstone than it is for shareholders. Can you explain your thinking on that? Uh, yes, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the stock market, you know, yesterday was up big time to a record and Paramount Global was down, although it is up again today. So, uh, although not back to where it was. So, uh, look, uh, I think what Ellison slash Cardinale are thinking about here is buying the parent company of Paramount Global, which is NAI or Sherry's holding company, or her, you know, first set up by her father Sumner, uh, which was the old uh, showcase cinema movie theater business that uh, Sumner's uh, family started, and he took over. I grew up with those, Bill. You, you probably did too in, uh, in New England, right? Those were the theater chains that were everywhere. Absolutely, absolutely. And at the time, Ben, you will no doubt remember they were pretty cutting edge. They were quite 
good. Everybody wanted to go to a showcase uh, cinema up in New England, uh, hmm. although I think they've sort of fallen behind a little bit. He used that to be uh, his acquisition vehicle, uh, first buying uh, Viacom, then Paramount, then blunders like Blockbuster and uh, even Midway Games. And that holding company owns... Uh, about 10% of the economic interest in Paramount Global, but close to 80% of the voting interest in Paramount Global. So basically, whoever owns uh, NAI uh, effectively controls uh, Paramount Global. Even though they only own a small percentage stake uh, of the economics, they own 80% of the voting. And so her father and now Sherry can appoint the board, take people off the board, uh, can uh, appoint the CEO, remove the CEO, you know, do whatever, pretty much whatever she wants. And of course, you know, the economic stake, uh, her economic stake in Paramount, you know, the equity uh, value of that 10% stake is about a billion dollars, maybe a billion one these days. But if you can, by buying that stake, can also convey control of the company, then obviously these guys are going to have to pay her a big premium. And I don't know what that would be. That's obviously a subject for negotiation. But, you know, let's just say she gets 100% premium, which is an absurd premium. But, you know, she's a, you know, cagey, uh, stubborn negotiator. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's not even enough. I don't know. But let's, for the sake of argument, say it's $2 billion. So for, for, you know, for $2 billion, plus assuming another sort of billion and a quarter or so of debt and preferred. So for three and a quarter billion, uh, they get control of Paramount Global, uh, as opposed to if they bought Paramount Global itself, uh, they'd have to pay, you know, 11 billion for the equity and then assume another 14 billion of debt. So make uh, versus 25 billion. So, I can see why uh, the investment bankers involved in this and David Ellison might think that's a clever idea to buy NAI. They can get control of uh, Paramount Global for, you know, three plus billion dollars. However, I'm not sure what they've uh, accomplished because, you know, they've basically just inherited Sherry's, uh, you know, economic and voting position, but also inherited Sherry's, uh, you know, I wanted to say nightmare, uh, you know, uh, difficult uh, situation that exists with Paramount Global, all the operating problems that we've, you know, cataloged for months. So I'm not sure. And I also don't see how easily anyway, he, he you know, combines Skydance, uh, his Ellison's uh, movie production company uh, with Paramount Global. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not sure how uh, that would be combined. So, uh, I'm not sure what this really does for Ellison and Cardinale, other than allowing them to uh, get a hold of the voting power, uh, uh, the voting ownership of of Paramount Global, relatively uh, cheaply. Yeah, but Bill, if you're um, if you're David Ellison or, or, or Jerry, I mean, how are you thinking about this deal? How are you, how would you be planning to make a, a profit off this deal? I mean, you just said they'd have to spend about three billion dollars to get control of the company and also this billion-dollar economic stake in Paramount Global. Um, obviously, they can then you know, appoint a new CEO, appoint a new board, and they can go about breaking up the company and selling it off for parts. Are, are they going to be able to make enough money doing that to make this whole operation worth it? I mean, if, if that's their idea, I, 
boy, I don't, not on that. That that would be quite a quite a scene. These are all low basis uh, assets, uh, so the the tax implications of the sale would be uh, you know pretty uh, meaningful, unless you know they just start spinning everything off to shareholders left and right, uh, which can be potentially done on a tax free basis. You know they could, I suppose, uh, try to then uh, merge Paramount Global with another company. And, and but I mean, I'm sure Sherry's explored all of that. Why? Why are Jerry and David going to be able to find a buyer that Sherry hasn't been able to to find? I suspect the reason we're at uh, Jerry and David is because there are no other buyers for this. Uh, are, there, are there buyers for individual pieces? Potentially, uh, there are buyers for uh, other pieces, maybe even some out-of-the-box uh, buyers for other pieces. But again, th- there'll be tax implications. I just, I, I don't really uh, see what it gets them necessarily. Maybe they've done the breakup analysis, uh, factoring in the tax implications. There'll probably be, uh, you know, shareholder lawsuits. I can't imagine uh, Mario Gabelli or, or Warren Buffett, the two biggest shareholders in uh, Paramount Global, would be happy about this. Uh, if this is what happens, that stock, you know, all the takeover premium is going to be out of the stock. Stocks are going to trade down to ten. Why wouldn't uh, Buffett, you know, step up and pay a dollar more than these guys to control the action? I, I, I don't know. May, I, I'm, am I getting to think that this is Sherry's way of saying, oh, you know, this is this is for sale now, and I'm going to just do something with anybody because I got to get out of this thing. I, you know, I've heard that her son uh, Tyler Korf is against this deal, so I don't know. Uh, I have a feeling there's a, 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 you know, we're in the, you know, we're in the top of the first here, Ben. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. And I, I don't really understand this either. Um, you know, you and Matt were going back and forth on this question in your um, in a written conversation you had in what I'm hearing the other day. But, you know, if there's so much value locked up in Paramount Global, to your point, why doesn't Sherry just break it up and sell off the empire herself? Like, is it a matter of pride? I, I know Matt seems to think that she's just not a seller or she's a very sort of ambivalent seller. You've said that, you know, the, the various moves you've seen her making suggest to you that she does intend to sell this company and maybe and maybe allowing Allison and, and, and Jerry Cardinale to, to kick the tires on NAI is just another signal that she's ready to uh, move this off her plate and be done with it. And and, and she's uh, uh, given her top executives like, you know, a cha- change of control um, bonuses and things like that and and uh, option packages uh so i mean she's doing the things that one would do uh if you were going to sell and and the bonds uh have, have although this i really i don't understand because there won't be i mean maybe there will be a, i mean maybe if you sell nai that's considered a change of control and that and therefore there's like a change of control uh, put that uh, you have to buy the Paramount bonds at par because of the change of control uh, under certain circumstances. And so the bonds of Paramount Global have traded up on that basis. Um, I, I mean, the leak, uh, you know, the, the what Matt reported is definitely moving the stock, moving the bonds. Uh, but I, you know, I see as an M&A guy, a former M&A guy, I see it as a clever way for David and, and Jerry to get control of Paramount Global relatively in, inexpensively. Although you know, again, they 
they, they think they're just buying the the equity of Paramount Global, but uh, control of Paramount Global. But they're inheriting problems up at the NAI level that we, and many of which we don't know about. I mean, there's the movie theater chain. We don't really know what condition that's in. We know it can't service its billion plus dollars of debt. Uh, so is there going to be an event of default up there at some point? And, and they're going to lose control of NAI to the creditors, or are they going to have to buy out the creditors? You know, who knows what else is up there that uh, Sherry has socked away up there over the years? I don't, I don't know. And then, they, and then they, they just inherit her problems uh, down at the Paramount Global level. And of course, they're fiduciaries because they control 80% of the voting stock. So they're not going to just be able to wash their hands of it. They're going to have to deal with it. So when the stock goes from 17 to 10, after this deal takes, then there's going to be all these shareholder lawsuits. And Merrill Gabelli and Warren Buffett are going to be pissed. So I don't know. I have my doubts. Sure. And and, and, and how much worse is everything going to get for Sherry if, you know, Ellison and, and, and Jerry take a sniff and then walk away? They don't like what they yeah, see under the hood. Too. Good luck finding yeah. another buyer after that. No, none of this is going to be good. This does not help Sherry, uh, does not help the buyer, and does not help my, uh, you know, I, I heard again from my uh, Paramount uh, Global shareholder who told me that he sold everything after the stock ran up. So he doesn't want to stick around for this show either. So uh, uh, that helped uh, a shareholder get out. Always sell the news. It's not a bad strategy, especially when it goes up to 17 bucks a share. So <laughs> Matt helped that guy. So he should be buying Matt a, you know, a nice bottle of champagne or maybe a, a pheasant under glass. <laughs> well, as we always say on this program, Bill, this is not investment advice. Just, just two guys just shooting the shit. Just observations, Ben. <laughs> yeah, just a couple of guys shooting the shit on a you know Thursday afternoon. Well, Bill, we always love having you on. Totally fascinating, and uh, we'll see where things go from here. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.